0: So let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Lord God, we just thank you. Thank you for the beautiful weather we have outside. Thank you, Lord God, that we can uh, come today to worship you, the famous one. Lord, your name is great. You are worthy to be praised. And we thank you that we come together to worship you. And so, Lord, we pray as we sit and and hear your word, we do pray that your spirit would speak to us, that it would be you, Lord, and not myself, that, Lord, you would open our ears and our hearts to you, Lord, and we lift this time to you in Jesus' name, amen. You know, doing all the announcements this time of year, it's kind of hard to believe that November is almost already gone, right? Right? This year went by really fast. I can't believe winter is upon us, and we've got December and Christmas coming up. And you look outside, I guess, you know, you, you couldn't tell if this is like winter or like April or something, right? But I guess this is our SoCal winter here, right? So it's like 70-something degrees. Um, from, I looked at the forecast. We're supposed to get some rain. And so I was going to mention that I I hope to have rain, and then I guess God said, well, check the forecast. And I look, and next week, we're supposed to get some rain. But I'm hoping we get some good, fresh snow. Uh, It's been a while since I've been out in the snow. I think it's been like four years or something like that since I've been in the snow. How many of you like snow? You like being in the snow? You like going in the snow? I, I like it as well. It's been a while. Hopefully, we'll get a chance this winter to get in the snow. There's two things I enjoy about the snow. One, I like making snowballs, right, how you like that, right, you like making snowballs, how many of you make snowmen, you like making snowmen, I think it's kind of cool, I like doing that, I think it's cool, it's fascinating because when you start off making snowballs or you're making snowmen, right, you start off with this little bit of snow and then you start rolling it, right, and then as you roll, what happens? The snow just bind, binds together, right? And so you get this really big snowball, right? And then you can make a snowman or, or you can just throw it at somebody, right? That's always fun. The other thing I like to do is sledding. How many of you like sledding? Like going down the sledding and stuff? Or maybe you ski or snowboard, right? I like going down sledding because I like the steep declines, right? I don't like the, like the very flat one. It's just kind of, ooh. I like a little speed right I like going down and hitting that speed and maybe hitting a bump and just catching some air that's always fun you know I like watching probably I like watching people do this more than I like doing it myself because I like them getting excited going down the hill but I probably should not admit this but I kind of like to admit this that I kind of like watching them wipe out too right? I I have a very, that's a very bad, you know, bad pastor, right? Bad pastor, but I got to admit, I like watching them go down, and they go and hit the bump, and boom, they wipe out, and everybody's like, oh, you know, that, that was a good one, and it, it's all fun watching them wipe out until they come out with tears in their face, right? And then, you know, they get, I've seen some pretty gnarly wipeouts, and then, then all the laughs turn to, like, oh, okay, right? We don't want to laugh about that. There's no fun in that part, but I like the I like Building snow snowballs and snow fights and snowmen and then slit, sliding down mountains on a whether whatever it is, a sled or something like that. That's always fun and stuff. Why am I talking about that? As we get into Genesis six, we see a time we're entering this period of Genesis where we see this great population growth. People are multiplying on the earth. But along with population growth came the growth and acceleration of the effects of sin. And like a snowball that may start out small, but as you go along, it grows. And like sliding down and accelerating downhill, sin has the same effect. It's like building snowballs from something small and it grows or the effects accelerate at speeds that are unexpected, sin will have that same effect. And we see that as we see the population grow. Now, I want to preface this message. And I've mentioned this to some people already. This is going to be a different sermon. All right? this, is, this is going to be a little bit more teaching than preaching. Um, I don't know if there's, I don't think there's any newcomers here. Maybe there's, you know, one who's not necessarily familiar. This is not the most, like, like new person, new guest, welcome to our church kind of sermon. So I'm glad most of you have been here for a while, right? But uh, this is a challenging passage that I couldn't ignore and just go to the easy stuff. So I just want to preface that. Hang with me and... We'll get through this uh, passage together. Let me me set up the scene. First, we're going to take a look at Genesis chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis 6. But let me set up the scene to kind of summarize what we've been looking at. We are 10 generations into mankind, right? Since Genesis chapter 3, we've had the first marriage, the first act of sin and disobedience. We saw that Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden For their own good, right? We saw the first family in Genesis chapter 4, but along with the first family, we saw the first what? We saw the first act of murder. Cain murders his brother Abel. And so then we saw that Cain, the oldest son, was banished further east to a life of wandering. So Cain... I'm sorry, let me back up for a second. So despite the emergence of sin we see in the garden and we see with Cain, Adam and Eve were spared, right? They were spared. Cain's life was spared. And in fact, their genealogies carried on. We see that later in chapter four and certainly in chapter five. And in fact, in Cain's lineage came ingenuity, creativity, with music and metalwork and so forth. But sin also continued to grow within his lineage as well. We see that the first mention in Cain's line, a first mention of polygamy. One of his descendants took on two wives. We also saw a continued murder, right, that he boasted of as well. So Cain was Adam and Eve's first son. But he would not be the son of promise, right? God would provide another son in Seth. And Seth's genealogy is laid out in chapter 5. The most notable besides Noah in that genealogy was Enoch, right? We looked at Enoch. And so that Enoch and Noah stood out from among that generation of lineage from Adam and Seth and so forth. And what made them stand out? It wasn't the creativity, it wasn't the ingenuity, it was that they walked with God. They walked with God. They were pleasing to God. So this is all that we looked at leading into Genesis chapter 6. So let's pick up in verse 1 says, Now I came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives from themselves, whomever they chose. Now I didn't preface this by saying already that if I was to put like a a rating to this message, like you know how you do it on movies, this is probably like a, well nowadays PG-13 ish kind of message, right? So... Hopefully this is okay. All right, where was I? And they took wives from themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in this time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. We'll stop there. Now most of us are familiar with this part of the Bible, right? I'm sure that most of us grew up hearing the story of Noah and the ark right we, we were all pretty much familiar with this story we're first introduced to this story like if you were growing up in the church how many grew up in the church okay some of you if you grew up going to church you were probably first introduced to this part of the story with with what like cute animals right cute smiling animals being led by some white bearded man Right, that's kind of like the pictures, the flannel graphs, or whatever you know we may have possibly seen. They're all being led by this white bearded man into this wooden boat. We've probably seen Sunday schools, classrooms, and even nurseries decorated with smiling animals. Right, this really cutesy decoration of it. Right, maybe some of you who are parents, you had a baby Bible like this. Right? Maybe you've had that before. With potentially Noah waving at all the drowning people. You know, I don't know exactly what Noah's doing here. I remember the song when you were a kid. How many of you remember that song about Noah? You know, I was going to sing it. I, I don't like singing, all right? especially on mic. The Lord told Noah to what? Build him a... An archy, archy, not an ark, An archie, right, right? And it rained and poured for what? How many? Forty daisies, daisies, right? Not days, but daisies, daisies, right? And it, it almost drove the animals what? Crazy. crazy, crazy, crazy children of the Lord, right? So, you know, if we look at the, the portrayal of the story by song or decoration, you would think that the, the story of Noah and the ark is just about some crazy, wacky, rainy day with these animals in reality in reality this story this moment is about judgment it's about death it is about complete devastation we don't see any decor- fun cute decorations about Sodom and Gomorrah right we don't decorate nurseries with that right But somehow we decorate it with these animals. But in reality, it is about utter violence, evil, and judgment. This is a time when all of humanity reached a state of utter corruption, utter evil. And so there is judgment. But this is actually not the craziest part of this passage. Verses 5 through 12 is actually much easier to preach on. It's a much easier sermon to get through. The more challenging one is verses 1 through 4. That's the more a dis- dis- little more difficult. Verses 1 through 4 is one of the more disputed, mysterious and even troubling passages in scripture. And of course, like it, like many other theological biblical discussions, there are different camps, and each camp is pretty certain that they have the right interpretation, right? I will say this as I'm going on. On oh, full disclosure, I have a leaning on this passage. This is a passage that I've gone back and forth on. I've listened to many messages. I've read. I've listened to all this kind of presentation, and so forth. And I would say honestly, this is one where. I will lean on, and I've gone back and forth about, and that I'm not teaching this with absolute certainty as to what position you must hold to, right? You've heard me say before, there are certain things in Scripture that we need to be very firm in, right, to be very certain about, and then there are mysteries that we can be fairly certain about, right? Right? And then there are other things, there's other disagreements that we can be unsettled with that we could agree to disagree on. Why do I say that? Because there are certain things that, like your salvation and your faith in God may not be hinged on these issues. And that there are godly, Bible-believing, devoted Christians who may disagree on certain things. And I think those kind of moments really divide the church. And so uh, this is one where I would say that you can agree to disagree on and think upon upon it, pray on it, and wrestle with it, and it shouldn't change your understanding of God, salvation, and so forth. With that being said, truth is stranger than fiction. We've all heard that phrase before, right? Truth is stranger than fiction. The craziest true stories... You couldn't write a script for right there are some stories that are true that really happen. that if someone was to write a hollywood script on it you would say that is ridiculous that is unbelievable who would believe such a story but that was a true story also the most evil things can seem even crazier than anything any movie or show that you would watch the most evil stories are, most, are the most unimaginable things that take place, and yet they do take place. And some of the things we've been watching and hearing on the news recently, right? So truth is stranger than fiction. With that being said, let's look at the first four verses a little more closely. Verse one, it says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves Whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, something that I've stressed to you many times and countless times before, to understand a passage, to be able to study the Bible, you can't just pluck a verse out of its context and try to understand it without understanding the context, right? You want to understand the immediate context and then expand the context to get a better understanding, a better supported interpretation of a passage. Now, what makes this section challenging to interpret is the identities within this passage, the who in this passage. So who are, the, who are the who's, who's the who who's, right, in this passage? We have men, a general statement of men who began multiplying, right? We have the daughters of men stated. And then we have this mention of sons of God. Of course, we have the Lord God here. And then we have a mention of the Nephilim. Who are the Nephilim? And then we have the mention of children of the sons of God and the daughters of men this union between specifically the sons of God and the daughters of men who are these children and then there should be a separate bullet point that the one in the parentheses who are the mighty men who are of old men of a renown men of renown that means of who are the, the these these were these certain individuals who are of famous who are well known for their feats or their strength, right? Who are these people, right? So the controversy and the difficulty in understanding this passage primarily is on the who's. Who are these people referring to? Before we get to the who, I want to go over what happens, okay? So what happened in this passage? The first thing we see is population growth in verse one, right? People began to multiply on the earth, and men were marrying and having daughters. Okay, no, nothing weird so far, right? We're okay with that. That sounds okay. Verse 2. We see that the sons of God married the daughters of men from whom, whomever they chose. So now we go from a general statement, but then a the specific mention of the sons of God seeing the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. I want to make sure I'm, I'm right on the slide, okay? Oh, I think I backed up. Anyways, let me back up. Okay. So the sons of God married the daughters of men from whomever they chose. So it's a very specific mention, right? Now this may not sound too strange, right? This doesn't sound too odd right now. But it starts to get a little interesting when you start to think about who are the sons of God. And you think about why is it significant that it says the sons of God took the daughters of men... Like, why the specified daughters of men? Like, what other daughters would it be, right? We don't, refer to the daughters of the monkeys or the daughters of the elephants. We don't talk that way. So why is it mentioning sons of God to the daughters of men, okay? And why is it that whomever they chose, we'll get into that in a moment, in a moment, In verse 3, then, we have a declaration from the Lord. The Lord said, my spirit shall not strive. That word strive is also translated as abide or contend with. And some people use different interpretations of that. But it says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. And then we see the Lord limits the days of man. It said, nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. So we see here that God limits man's days to 120 years. What does that mean? Well, we know that after the flood, there were some who lived longer than 120 days, right? So we can't say that God just cut off the amount of years that men lived at that point because we know after the flood, they lived a little longer than that and it went shorter thereafter. A likely understanding of this part is that God gave a limit of 120 years until the flood would come. Judgment would come. So perhaps when God says this, it's 120 years prior to the flood. Follow me so far? So the things that are happening in this passage, right? So the Lord limits the days of man. Verse 4. Well, it's also interesting that this is the beginning. We see this tension between God's spirit and the flesh of man, right? It's interesting that we see this introduction to this tension because this is a theme we see throughout scripture, okay? So verse four, then we see the Nephilim. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. So the next thing we see that what happens in this passage, am I talking too fast? I'll slow down. Children were born to the sons of God and the daughters of men, okay? Men began to multiply, the sons of God have been seeing the daughters of men that they were, you know, and the translation is beautiful, but that word beautiful is the same word that is used in creation when God says His creation, creative act was good, right? When He says it was good, it's the same word. So the sons of God are seeing these daughters of men that they are good or pleasing. We see the, the translation beautiful that they marry God limits the days of man, but this union between the sons of God and the daughters of men produce offspring, produce children. And in verse four, we're introduced to the Nephilim. And we know the Nephilim, that word Nephilim literally means giants. So there were giants on the earth in those days and afterward. Right Now which days particular? when the sons of God had relations with the daughters of men and bore children to them. So what Moses is saying is that the Nephilim were there when this happened and afterward. These giants were there. Now a lot of question is about this passage is, were the children the mighty men of old, the men of renown? right? Were the children of the sons of God and the daughters of men this union? Were they these men of renown, of, of fame and strength? Or were the, the, the men of renown, was that a reference to the Nephilim, these giants? Were these giants these men of renown and fame? Or is it one and the same? Is it that the sons of God married the daughters of men, and they had children, and they were men of renown, and these men of renown were known as the Nephilim, they were giants? Can you see why this took me some time to write out? And this is not an easy passage to interpret because there's many different views. So people were multiplying, right? this is to, to get the general sense. Men were taking wives, children were being born, God limited the days of men. Why is this controversial? Well, the controversy involves the identity of the sons of God. This is the main reason for controversy, or maybe not so much controversy, well, controversy and also unsettledness is who are the sons of God, the daughters of men and the Nephilim. And there are two main positions in uh, in understanding this passage, understanding this uh, first four verses. Okay? Let's first address the identity of the sons of God, because all the different views really hinges upon how you view the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? The first view is that the sons of God refers to male descendants of the line of Seth. This position is also known as the godly line of Seth, okay? It's referred to as the godly line of Seth position. And that may be a, mis- a bit of a misnomer because in Scripture we don't really give a clear indication that his sets of genealogy was necessarily godly. But it gets named, and I'll explain why in a second. If you only read Genesis 1 through 6, just straight out those first six chapters, you will probably align with this understanding that the sons of God is a reference to the men incest genealogy. I'll explain why. One we've seen from, even from chapter 3 of Genesis, there's a theme of seed and genealogy, right? Seed of seed, not like planting seeds, like actual like fruit tree seeds, right? Seed as in your descendants, right? We see this theme going way back to chapter 3, right? And even before then, God told Adam, tells Adam and Eve to what? Be fruitful and multiply. That was God's command. that was His intention for people to be fruitful and multiply. If you remember in chapter three, when God confronts the serpent, right in judgment, right? He deceived Eve. If you remember what He said to them, right he would be to the serpent, there would be enmity between what? His seed and her seed. Eve's seed. He doesn't say Adam's seed particularly, right? Because he deceives Eve. And so there's going to be this tension, this enmity between his seed and her seed. So from right there, we see this theme of genealogy and this idea of seed, right? It's interesting that Adam remains silent in all this. We don't get quotes from Adam in Genesis. It's kind of weird, right? But we do get it from Eve. We do hear from Eve. Eve spoke to the serpent. Later, Eve makes declarations when Cain was born and when Seth was born. You see that in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 and verse 25. And God gives her offspring and God's promise of life coming from her is fulfilled, right? God told Eve, through pain you will will go through childbirth. So God still allows her to produce life, right? So forth. We then see in chapter 4, Cain's genealogy, though it's shorter than Seth's. Cain's genealogy goes seven generations, Seth's goes a total of ten, right? What's interesting is the timing of the mention of men worshiping the name of the Lord. We see in Genesis four twenty six, it says, And to Seth, to him also a son was born. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So some tithe, they look at this verse and think that this is a, a description of a godly genealogy because they, men began to worship the Lord after Seth's son was born. So we have this framing idea of this genealogy, but also a godly line of Seth, right? We also know the mention of Enoch, that Enoch walked with God. So all this immediately follows the breakdown of Seth's genealogy. So if you're reading the flow of it, right, you may identify the sons of God with Seth's line, genealogy, from Adam and Eve's other sons, right? They had other sons and daughters. But the focus seems to go to Seth's genealogy. And so you may get that the men from Seth's lineage marries daughters from all men, so maybe it's not just Seth's line, but from men in general, from whomever they chose, and that they had children who were known to be men of old and men of renown, and that these were mighty men of fame and strength. So this position is an inference of this godly line of Seth marrying daughters of potentially ungodly men. So perhaps that the godly lineage of Seth married these ungodly women, or in general, and they produced these ungodly unions. And this perpetuated sinfulness as you go forth. So this is one position that is presented in understanding this passage. There's one big problem with this interpretation which leads to the second view. And this happens to be the oldest, more traditional view, understanding of the passage. The second way to interpret this is that these are angelic or supernatural beings. The sons of God are supernatural or angelic beings, also known as fallen angels. You're thinking, whoa, okay. Okay. This went from kind of a boring story of family history to like a weird sci-fi horror Netflix show, right? This is probably on Netflix somewhere, right? Yes, the most traditional understanding is that the sons of God is a reference to fallen angels who saw the beauty of the daughters of men married them, went into married union with them, and had children. I bet you didn't think your Sunday message was going to be something about this, right? You may think, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. That's a little weird. That's a little scripted. That's a little kind of strange. How could you arrive to that conclusion? Well, it's not just imagination. The use of, where it says sons of God, in Hebrew, "Bene Elohim, that's a very unique phrase, sons of God. That particular phrase is only used in three other times in the, in the Old Testament. And there's some variation of it in a couple other passages. And in those instances, it's used in Job 1.6, chapter 2, verse 1 of Job, and Job 38.7. And each of those instances when that phrase Bene Elohim, the sons of God, is used, it's in reference to angelic supernatural beings. You see in Job that the sons of God appear before God, and we see that Satan is there in the midst of them. Okay? We also see in Job 38, verse 7, it describes the sons of God rejoicing when God is creating so the picture is that these angelic these supernatural beings were rejoicing as they witnessed God create so obviously in these passages the sons of God are not normal people they were there beforehand so some may think well okay okay but could this mention in Genesis be an exception Right? We know that in, in, in Job it's used as angelic supernatural beings, but could this be an exception? Well, there's further problems with that, right? There's further problems that in other sources, it takes on the interpretation that the sons of God are referencing fallen angels. Okay? You see this in outside sources in the book of Enoch. Book of Enoch is not in the Bible, in our Bible, right? If you go in the table of contents or the things you're not going to see, Book of Enoch. It was an intertestament period of time. So it's an apocryphal book. But it was a writing at the time and the belief was that the fallen angels took on human flesh and had these relations with women. We also see that this was early, had early church support as well as Jewish rabb- rabbinical support as well. But then you also see the potential New Testament support in 1 Peter 3, verse 19 to 20, 2 Peter 2, verse 4 to 10, and Jude, verses 5 through 7. What do those verses say? I'm not going to go over all of it because this would be a really long message. But in those 1 Peter and 2 Peter, It describes that angels who were disobedient to God and sinned against God. So we know that that's not a disputed thing, that there were angels who sinned against God, were disobedient to God, but that they also did not escape God's judgment. These disobedient angels did not escape God's judgment. What we have in Jude is a reference to, and that many people interpret this, I'll, let me clarify this, many interpret Jude 5-7 through as referencing angels who did not, quote-unquote, keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. So people who look at that, they look at that as referencing that angels did not keep in their current state, but they abandoned and took on human flesh. They went down and took on human flesh. Later, Job describes it as they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Some people interpret this passage in Jude saying that this, these disobedient angels did not keep to who they were, but they abandoned it and took on human flesh and had immorality with human women, the daughters of men. So those are the two main positions. So where do I stand in all this? I'll leave that for next week. Let's pray. No, okay. (laughs) I've gone back and forth, as I mentioned. And mainly the reason why I went back and forth, because it's hard to conceive of the second option. And jug beings being able to take on human flesh, having sexual relations with women, and producing children, Right? But the position I do lean towards is that the sons of God indeed reference disobedient fallen angels. And I've gone back and forth on this. And these fallen angels were were lured by the daughters of men. I can see that being very true. The sons of God reference these angelic beings. We don't see females being described in scripture of these angelic beings, let alone. It doesn't say sons and daughters of God. So, God must have made these sons. And it's interesting that God saved women last, right? The woman last. Eve was, was the last creative act we see in, in Genesis. And it's quite interesting that it, it emphasizes that these men had daughters and that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were good. Is it conceivable that these supernatural beings? lusted after the daughters of men. Is it possible? Well, I'll tell you this, it it can very well explain why you see so much sexual immorality involved in temple worships, cult worships, other religions. If you study other religions and beliefs throughout human history, especially temple worships, and idol worships and all these kind of things, you see, always see, this kind of immorality. And in fact, when you see in other cults, you always have a presence of sexual immorality. So does it make sense that this this was a big sin for these fallen angels? It makes sense. It makes sense. Does that mean that they literally took on human flesh and had relationships, took on daughters and had, or as wives, and had children and produced these hybrid giant children. I don't necessarily think that's the case. I don't know if I'm there to arrive at that point. Perhaps they possessed humans and influenced it and produced children. You think, well, what about the Nephilim? What about these giants? Well, as you look at the passage, the Nephilim, these giants, were not necessarily the hybrid offspring of human and demonic relations, right? You don't have to arrive to that when you read the scripture. Moses simply states that these giants that the Israelites are very familiar with because they encountered them in numbers before they went to the promised land. They sent spies and they said they saw the Nephilim there, right? So Moses is saying that the Nephilim were there when this took place and were there afterwards. So before the flood and after, after the flood, were the, the Nephilim were there. These giants were there. So these giants existed, and the Nephilim aren't the only named, quote-unquote, giants in Scripture in the Old Testament. There's other referred to giants, not just the Nephilim. The Rephaim and so forth, okay? Maybe we'll get to that later on. When you think about it, to a lesser degree, we have giants today, don't we? The much-hyped NBA rookie Victor Wembayama—he's seven foot five. Okay, the tallest NBA player to ever play, George Muresan. of you remember him? He was seven foot seven. Right? How many of you, if you've ever watched the NBA in the '80s and '90s, you might recall at that time there were two teammates—they were the tallest and shortest players in the NBA. Manute Bull and Muggsy Bogues. How many of you remember this, right? They were on the same team. Manute Bull was 7'6". Muggsy Bogues was 5'3". They were on the same team together. It was kind of funny. Goliath was recorded around approximately 9 feet tall. The tallest verified human recorded was a man named Robert Wadlow who was 8'11". He died in 1940 at 22 years old, right? So because we have this mention of giants, does that mean they are a product of a, a, a union between demons or fallen angels and daughters of men? I don't think we have to arrive to that. Nor do I think the NBA players are offspring of, of like demons and, and stuff, right? Okay, I think we can, we can verify that. The flow of Genesis 5 to 6, I think, is this. Whichever position you land on. God provided a line of descendants to Adam and Eve. God's mercy was extended and shown through this line of Seth. Despite their sinfulness and disobedience, we see God's mercy. And we've seen it shown specifically through the lineage of Seth. We see Enoch was faithful to God. But as people began to multiply, so did the effects of sin. And sin began to diversify as well. Sin increased. And what I think we see in chapter 6 is the mingling of the disobedience in the spiritual realm with the disobedience in the physical realm. What could we take away from this passage? be careful who you marry. No. All right. <laughs> that is wise. And if parents, if your daughter's about to marry someone you don't like, you say, you know what? There's a passage in Genesis 6 that, you know, there may have been potential demons marrying the daughters and I think he's a demon, right? No, don't do that. Don't do that. That's not, the, that's not the passage. What I would say this is one. The spiritual realm, this is a takeaway for now. The spiritual realm manipulates and affects our physical realm. The demonic is real and persuasive. I think we have to take that away. Whether, again, whether you want to say it as the sons of God is purely the lineage of Seth or not. Personally, you gotta, I think there's that argument of who the sons of God is scripturally I don't know how you can, I mean, I know how you can, but that's a big thing to kind of try to explain away. You can, but is it uh, honest to the text? That's a tough one, right? It's hard to explain away. I've tried it myself. I could probably do it, but where do I lean, right? But what you can say is that we are often not aware of the spiritual realm. There's things of the spiritual realm that we haven't really engaged in a lot. And I, I, I'm currently reading a book and watching, and he goes into that, and I am not certainly ready to present that today. But I can't say that there's, I even myself, knowing that there's a spiritual realm, I realize that, you know what, I undersell a lot of the spiritual realm. The fact that the spiritual manipulates and affects the physical. And that you look at the occult, the New Age, uh, either, even other religious beliefs, there is demonic teaching behind it. And then we have to realize that. That the demonic is real and influential in the ideology and the behaviors of people. But I think there's a reason, if you read this passage, if you take that the sons of God or these demonic fallen angels, doesn't it seem a little underselling, right? But doesn't it seem like if this was a, a thing, this would be like a big deal? Perhaps the audience of the day, that's, that's just in their understanding. That's not beyond them, their understanding of it, right? But for us, we look at it like, well, that's, that, it seems like it needs a little more explanation. Here's why I also think. Despite that, God still holds man accountable for their sin. Despite any spiritual influence, to whatever degree, man is still held accountable for their sin. If you look, as we, next week we're going to look at the remainder of the passage. Why does God bring judgment like the flood? It was man's sinfulness. He doesn't specifically say, well, it's because these sons of God corrupted man. It's because the sons has got to eliminate it. What we see is man's sinfulness reached to a certain, such an extent that God's judgment had to come, come down. So that second point and our takeaway until next week is this. We, we often have this mentality of, oh, the devil made me do it. Oh, I'm being attacked. I'm being tempted. Oh, I'm feeling so much pressure. We like to blame things on spiritual things. But they can't take away from our accountability the decisions we make, the positions we find ourselves in. We are still held accountable. Regardless of whatever supernatural, spiritual things that are going on, are you doing what is right before God? Or are you putting yourself in situations to make you vulnerable to these spiritual influences? Things like the occult, spiritist things, new age things. And you may be into things that you don't even think of as new age, but they are. The amount of spiritual things that are in, whether it's programming or, or books or all those things that you're getting into. These days, you just don't even think about it. But regardless of that reality, we are still held accountable for our sinfulness, the decisions we make. And what we're going to see next week is the height of man's corruption, the extent of what society becomes when it's unrestrained. We'll get to that next week. Boy, what a great way to end, right? Like I said, this is a part one To part two next week. I had to get this out to understand what is going on. Next week, we'll see just how corrupt the conditions are in the days of Noah. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, Lord um, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us, speaks to us, guides us in truth. And Lord, we also want to recognize there are many spirits out there that's trying to deceive us. Lure us, lure us with empty promises, empty claims false gods, false beliefs. These demonic influences want us to believe that we can be gods, that we can reach the height of your glory, that we can be in control of our destiny, that we don't need the God of the Bible. Lord, I pray in this generation that is showing its evil more and more openly, may we cling to your truth. Rest in your faithfulness. And we ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.